Hello and welcome back to the Hidden Gems Movie Podcast. My name is Sam and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, movie soulmate, friend, political enemy, religious enemy, driving enemy. Driving soon. enemy? Yeah, because we're going to race soon. We're going to go to the go-kart track and do oh, some racing true. soon. But that's for our separate uh, racing podcast that's getting launched next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, <clears throat> Steve, how you doing? Doing swell. Okay. I'm very excited about today's episode. Um, I'm excited about all of them, but I'm specifically excited about today's episode because I feel like recently we've been getting a little, a little sensitive, a little. Uh, we're, we're we're veering towards the movies have to be life affirming and wonderful, and they got to tell us all about the human condition. I mean, I even went on a long rant about it in the last episode. In this episode, we get to criticize. Yay! And I, and I love being critical. All right, the Oscars just happened. And I think we're get this out of the way right now. We said this a million times. Not fans of the Oscars, you and I. However, used to be right. I used to be a huge fan. I could tell you a virtual. I could tell you virtually every Oscar winning picture. I've seen every right. Oscar winning picture except this year. There was a time I could also do that. Um, my now I think that we're gonna share common ground on things we dislike about the Oscars, which are political. Even though I am the liberal party in this room. But at the same time, I also have deeper philosophical issues with the Oscars or awarding subjective art. Um, actually, no, I don't think art is subjective in its quality. I think its quality is quite objective. But I think turning it into an awards process in itself is ridiculous. So before we get into these movies, let's talk about the 2021 Oscars a little bit. Um, let's carve them up. <clears throat> yeah. Steve, what is your—and f- and this is a good one to carve up, by the way, because mm-hmm. these Oscars had almost no— um, Almost no major awards were given out based on the movie, the quality of the movie itself, or the quality of the performance. These were the entire. These were the virtue signaling Oscars of all virtue signaling Oscars. Um, Steve, what did you notice first about these Oscars? Well, it was the first a speech <coughs> by Regina King. The first speech by well, Regina. Not to, well, it was uh, uh, her introductory yeah. comments. Mm-hmm. What she said at the beginning, I'm paraphrasing yeah. here, is that um, I know you viewers are going to want to reach for your remotes yeah. when you feel like you're being lectured to, but and I don't know what she said after that because on you cue, off your remote. I reached for my remote and fast forwarded. I'm not going to be lectured to. I. How much is enough? Yeah. How many times can you wag your finger? Back in 1978, yeah. Vanessa Redgrave won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Okay, yeah. she gave a speech in which she lambasted uh, protesters who were outside. Okay, they were Jewish protesters or pro-Israeli <coughs> protesters because she she had expressed uh, support for the Palestinian cause. Okay. After that, she got a, some applause, a mixed reaction from the crowd. Patty Chayefsky came on to give out an award for screenplay, but before mm-hmm. he did, he, la- he he criticized her, not harshly, not the way they would today. Yeah. He said, you know what, um, her opinions are her own, yep. and maybe she should keep them to herself. Yeah. And then he picked up his envelope, so now on to more important things. And I thought that was classy, and he got cheered for that. Now he would have been run out of the Academy on a rail. Interesting. Always thought Patty Chayefsky was a woman. <laughs> I've never, you know, it's funny. I have never looked up Patty Chayefsky once in my life. I just kind of assumed was a chick. <laughs> I'm that serious. Are you? I'm a hundred percent serious. I thought the guy who wrote Marty yep, was Pat, a woman. <laughs> Patty Chayefsky wrote Marty. I know yeah. he wrote Network. He did. Yeah, I thought it was a lady. 
Oh wow! You know, it's just why I love Patty Chesky movies. Well, I can never I can blame com- you. I could see it if you thought he was an Irish person. <laughs> no, never once thought compelled to look him up. Look, revealing my ignorance here. I'm not ashamed <laughs> to admit it. All right, here's my situation. There are people in life I'm going to listen to, mm-hmm. even as a liberal. Right? I love Gore Vidal. What a smart guy. Knows history, knows his facts. You may disagree with him, but he's a smart guy. You turn me on to Gore Vidal. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I hate his politics, right. but I can't stop reading. He's fantastic okay. writer. He's a fantastic writer. I think what the Hollywood actors, their line is, well, we are people, and we deserve to have opinions. Okay. But the issue is they also feel that they have a the whole responsibility to my platform. All these guys think that because they're famous that they should be saying something about the causes they feel um, strongly about because if they don't, that somehow they're letting down the cause because they have this platform and it's their responsibility to help even though they don't want to. This is the bullshit founding fathers. <laughs> I don't want to be the president, but if I'm called to serve, <laughs> sir, and it's horseshit. It is, we, I do this podcast because I love to talk. I love to express <laughs> my opinion, but you know what? I know a hell of a lot more about movies than they know about politics, even though I generally agree with their politics. The point is, you're not you're not only ill-equipped to be talking about the things you're talking about. As Ricky Gervais once said, uh, none of you have any idea what the real world is like. Most of you have been to less school than Greta Thunberg. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right. I thought that All was right. a great, great line. So not only are they completely ill-equipped to talk about what they're talking about, as much as they think that they are experts, they are not. But B, they're probably doing a disservice to the causes they care about because people hate to listen to people, to actors, directors, writers, talk to them about this shit. It's just not, they're not smart enough. Like, they make too much money putting on costumes to lecture anybody about real-world issues. We have people in this world who deal with real-world issues. It is their profession. Leave it to them. And if you're going to tell me, well, there are a lot of people who only pay attention to Hollywood, and therefore this helps expose people to issues they may otherwise not hear about, then we're just fucking doomed. You know, <laughs> well, that, that's not true to begin with. <laughs> yeah. Because, especially in the last couple of years. You know what? I'll make a controversial statement that's been said before. If you're not wrapped up in, in uh, the current events of the country, that's not necessarily a bad sign. Yeah, right. During uh, the previous, uh, you know, from the 90s to even after 9-11, if you weren't, it, it generally indicates... Um, you know, that people are mostly satisfied. Not everybody is satisfied. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you do have to um, shine a light, and you do it. You can do it with movies, okay? That, that, that's true, all right? Yeah. But to be radical and, and, and to um, bombard people who are just com- coming in to watch an award show, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's nothing—I'll I'll bet there's not a syllable that was expressed that people hadn't already heard. I don't buy that nonsense mm-hmm. that um, uh, people are so ill-informed. Right, right. now, we've, I, I think the country has never been in a more hostile state yep. um, in my lifetime. In our well, life, maybe yeah. the late 60s. Maybe the I was going to say, because there has been a more hostile state. Maybe the, state. the late 60s. <laughs> oh, well, I'm saying in my lifetime. Yeah, yeah. In the late 60s, but I was a child then. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't remember it too well. I've never seen, at least in my adult life, 
um, people at knives drawn like they are now, and they have become obsessed with politics. There's not a syllable that was expressed that people haven't already right. heard. So what you're doing now is you're picking sides. And here's here's my deal. So I'm really crystal clear on this. Um, I have as much problem with Clint Eastwood giving a speech at the Republican National Convention as I do if Warren Beatty were giving one. These people are not qualified to step into this arena. To and, be fair, Clint yeah. Eastwood was an elected official. Where? He when? was uh, he was uh, in, right in the prime of his uh, movie career. He was mayor of uh, Modesto, California. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think he was qualified to give a speech at the Republican <laughs> National Convention? I do think he was. I didn't think much of the speech. It was kind of silly, and it was All kind right. of we got to disagree there. I think that he, he didn't do a, he didn't do a speech. He did a bit, and it was yeah, a little weird. I think you would have had the safer argument, even if you had felt. Yes, you should have said no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> because my problem is, if you're a Republican, my problem with Republicans in this matter when it comes to Hollywood in general is that they seem to disagree more with what the actors' politics are than them expressing them. I, I'm actually against the expression. Okay. Because I've always said this. nothing. I never get mad at the other team. The other team is the other team. They have a goal. Their goal is to beat me. My goal is to beat them. Whatever tactics they use to beat me is in the pursuit of their goal, which is to beat me. I cannot be mad about that. What I get mad about is when people on my own team fuck up. And you know this because if you've ever been in, if you've ever played team sports, you're far more likely to argue with your teammate than the guy on the other team. It just that's how it works. You you know, you guys must be on the same team. Hey man, you messed up and now we lost. You don't, true, true. you don't go to the guy on the other team like, I don't like the way you beat me like that. <laughs> it's just not how it happens. So my point is these actors should just shut up because A, they're not qualified, and B, it sounds wrong coming out of their mouths. If, if The last thing I want is for a, a cause I feel passionate about for some stupid fucking actor to like blow it up in the press and then invite all this negative attention. It's just moronic. All right. Yeah, let me say, uh, yeah. Let me say one thing about that. Um, if I heard... If there was such a thing as a hireable conservative actor, yeah, uh, outside of Clint Eastwood, and uh, Clint Eastwood is is no thorough, uh, he he may be a Republican, but he's no thorough uh, conservative. Um, if I if during that that Oscar cast, a uh, you know somebody expressed a conservative idea, yeah, uh, I would welcome it, but only as a novelty because <laughs> it's like something you've never seen before. Yeah, right. Tyler Perry did say, I don't want to hate. Yeah. I don't want to hate black people. I don't, I don't want uh, hate white people. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hate police officers. And that was deemed controversial. Okay. Right. 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 That was the closest thing to a right wing, uh, a political expression. However, if the tide had turned, I don't want jingoistic John Wayne pro Vietnam yeah. uh, speeches either. Yeah. Uh, in that sense, I definitely do agree with you. So let's talk about these awards for a second. All right. This is where we're going to tread on dangerous ground. And here's what I'm going to say about diversity in Hollywood, diversity in award shows, blah, 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 blah. I think that anybody should be given a chance to make a terrible movie. All right. <laughs> I do not think, I think anybody should be given the chance to make money in Hollywood. I think that especially in America, um, white audiences are extremely willing to watch movies starring black actors and Hispanic actors and Asian actors. I think that there's tons of evidence to support this financially, that these people 
can make movies that white audiences will watch and they'll make a lot of money and they should be given the chance to make mediocre films that stupid people are going to watch. Stupid people are going to watch white action, white male action movie stars. They should be able to watch black male and black female action stars. That doesn't make those movies good. That's true. It doesn't make those movies good. It's great. Everyone should have a, the chance to make a, everyone equal opportunity, right? I'm all for equal opportunity. That doesn't make the product itself good. And we are losing sight of that. Green Book from, what was it, two years ago, mm-hmm. is the best example of this. Um, it's getting to the point now where it just doesn't matter how good the movie or performance actually is. It's just It just has to tick certain boxes of inclusion and diversity. Now, people will have their own arguments to say, look, it's important that we shine a spotlight and recognize filmmakers who otherwise would not be recognized, especially if they were minorities. And I'm cool with that. I, I think Moonlight's a great example of what the Oscars can do right. They can take a great movie, shine a light on it, and more people will go see it. If it's a black-made film, all the better. I, I don't care. That's great, right? They can really do that for all independent films. It's not like if you're a white male independent filmmaker, you're somehow at the top of Hollywood, right? No one's seeing your movies either. Um, but the movies have to start with being good. Moonlight's a good movie. And I think we are getting far away from that. Um, and now it's just literally, they're voting purely on the identity politics of it and nothing else. The quality doesn't even matter. In fact, I'm glad Anthony Hopkins won that award uh, because it's just a sign that the better performance from literally the the one type of person nobody wants to see at the moment, which is old white male. <laughs> but you know what? His performance was the best, hands down. It was the best of the performances nominated. I I, I can't speak to that because I the only performance of best. Yeah. I, I haven't yeah. seen very many of the contenders at all, yeah. so I, I I can't speak intelligently about. Um, you know, uh, the, the quality versus quality. I did see uh, Chadwick Boseman's performance it's in Ma Rainey's back. I, I thought it was a, bit, a little bit scene-chewing. Yeah, it was. <clears throat> I'm okay with that. And it was, and the movie was a little stagey. Absolutely. I, I thought... Uh, um, um, Viola Davis? Viola Davis. Man, she had she played... She's she great. was fantastic. Yeah, she's she was better fantastic. than he is. Absolutely. I, I thought it was, and, and his performance is kind of a, a supporting performance, but that, hey... Academy has done has a long history of putting favored Anthony uh, Hopkins, Anthony Hopkins and Silence of the Lambs, uh, Bar- Brando and Godfather, yep. essentially yep. supporting for us. Right. So that's not that's not race based. Um, and and I think you were going to lead into that. He, I thought his, his a little bit of scene chewing. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't think it was that great, but I haven't seen Anthony Hopkins, so I can't say. Being dead doesn't make your performance any better. And the same thing goes for Heath Ledger. Now, I think Heath Ledger would have won that award regardless, dead or alive. That was an innovative uh, take on evil. It really was. The idea that it's like, okay, like, first of all, I guess they're giving it to him for Black Panther. Really, at the end of the day, they're giving it to Black Panther. By the way, not a great movie. I'm glad it made a lot of money. And you know what? His performance (laughs) is still any decent Actor yeah. could have given the same performance. Nothing is being demanded. And I'll tell you, it's not what. the best performance in the movie. The best performance well, in that yeah, movie is Michael B. Michael Jordan, B. Jordan yeah, yeah. who, by the way, himself not a great actor. <laughs> He's really not. I, I think it's I think it's too early to say that yet. Um, I I've been kind of impressed with some of the stuff I've seen, but I haven't. Um, you're you're right. Uh, it, it was kind of Black Panther and uh, yeah. Chadwick Boseman's performance in that. 
um, underscores the danger of making sure that uh, you know the favored political groups yeah. are always well represented and represented in a positive light. Yeah. Because everybody knows that the heroes, the, the virtuous people, are dull. Yeah, that's right. He was dull. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's no, it's not a knock on the actor. Superheroes are almost yeah. always dull, and to make it even more dull, he doesn't have this tortured past. Yep. Uh, yeah, he lost his father. That's yeah. true. But he doesn't have this this incredible, you know, uh, twisted, um, uh, you know, past that we at least you know that the, the Batman mm -hmm. actors could could yeah. latch onto. All right, here's the last thing I want to say about this. Um, before I get, actually, I want to bash Francis McDormand for a little while, and then, but okay. first, don't forget ha the order of best picture. I think that's inclusion perfect. should not be the striving towards some shitty award. That is not <laughs> what inclusion's about. It makes me so mad that people think progress is being made in America racially based on Academy Awards. It is ridiculous. Yeah. The way that real inclusion happens, the way that we know we are making progress as a country in the arts, forget the politics. I don't think arts and pol arts don't have any effects on politics. It's all self-righteous bullshit. What art does, it makes you feel good, it makes you think, but it doesn't affect the political nature of the country. However, if, if, if American audiences are not only going to see black-made, Asian-made, Hispanic-made films, but also remembering them fondly, throughout the ages, and then having their kids and new generations rediscover them, that is progress. That is the award of movie making. There are two awards in movie making. The first is getting to make a movie. Such a rare privilege. Good point. The second is making a movie that people like, is remembered fondly in years to come, and that new generations will come to rediscover. All right? Nobody gives a shit that 2001 A Space Odyssey didn't win any major Oscars. All right? The award shows do not determine what is good. You can't even really do that. Um, I don't think art is totally subjective. I do think movies are better than others. But this is really determined in the years that follow, based on how people remember them. And that's why I'm going to just real quickly lead into something. Nobody talks about Spotlight anymore. Nobody <laughs> talks about that movie. And it was just a few years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody still talks about Mad Max. And Mad Max is going to be the first movie we discuss. But the last thing I want to say is this. Frances McDormand is so insufferable. She's becoming the worst example of your high school theater teacher. You know, just like this big personality. She said, my work is my sword. Guess what? You're not fighting for anything. Your movies don't change. Nobody's life is better because you made a movie, except for maybe Chloe Zhao, right? The director of Nomadland, which is an interminably boring film. Um, and by the way, it's hard to make a movie about how terrible the recession is when it's like, but Amazon is still giving us work. You know, like it's just like it's ridiculous to make a social justice anti-capitalist film funded by Amazon, in which the main characters all work for Amazon, and it's the only money they're getting at the moment. But the idea, I mean, her speeches—it is the just the classic rich white woman, like I am the voice of all of you, and these white <laughs> men that I'm married to, by the way, they need to <laughs> shut up and let me be the voice of you. How about you shut up too? It's just ridiculous. When she won the Oscar a couple of years ago yeah. for three billboards, terrible um, speech, terrible movie. It was it was it was incredibly insufferable. She said, "I just learned that you could write it into your contract that you could have inclusive. Uh, you have the right to have inclusive mm -hmm. uh, crew members. Yep. You know, 
So, uh, you know, uh, apparently she had too many uh, white males, mm-hmm. right? But I was wondering, she has the power. Yeah. Do those crewmen also, uh, can, they, can they have it written in their union contract that eh, maybe they don't want to see the same mm-hmm. old, white, rich uh, actress uh, that they have to light yeah. and to have to deal with her, her insufferableness? Uh, can it go both ways? It's a great <laughs> point, Steve. She holds all the power here. Yes. And she would never give it up. She would never give. She wouldn't let some crew member get that in his contract. No, right. So what does that tell you? She doesn't give a shit about equality. She gives a shit about having the power uh, over other people. And she she uh, she uh, really enjoys the fact that uh, you, you, she can be spotlighted that way. How do the Coen brothers stand her? <laughs> she represents everything they hate. Well, which one's married to him, Joel or Ethan? The uh, older one, Ethan. And I wonder if Ethan uh, there's a little buyer's remorse. I mean, maybe they're happily married. Uh, they, they must have a whole wing devoted to Oscars because now they have, uh, what, eight? Yeah, <laughs> Seven he, or eight. He didn't seem that particularly enthused by her speech. <laughs> These are two guys who seem to hate everything about people who are egocentric. I mean, mm-hmm. that's like their whole worldview. Yeah. If you know anything about the about the Coens, they hate egocentrism. They hate anyone praising themselves for any reason. These, Martin Fink was created yeah. as a skewer to, you know, uh, yeah, people, people like pretension, to artistic pretension. Yeah, no, Martin <laughs> Fink is literally skewering people like Francis McDormand. Yes. It makes no sense. All right. Any last words on these Oscars before we move on? I will. I, I just want to say I, I kind of disagree with you on on uh, the influence that the media, uh, more more yeah. so television, especially more so recently, because when you make a movie and you're plowing, uh, you know, a hundred million dollars, you don't want to risk too much controversy. So in that sense, you're absolutely right as far as movies go. They're getting less bold where the money, where people actually go to see them. You're not going to see, uh, you know obvious politics in uh, Mar- the Marvel Universe. You will see it subtly, but you won't see it Marvel. But TV, I think, uh, which everybody seems to be going to, it can have an influence. When when there are certain voices that are never depicted and that they're decried when they are depicted, Hillbilly Elegy, for example, uh, I think it can have a, 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 an influence. You know what disagreeing with me means? What's that? It means you're a bad person. Yes. Oh, racist. Don't forget racist. Yes, I'm you're a racist. racist. You're all those yes. things. All right. <laughs> Okay, so we haven't actually said what the topic of this podcast is, and this podcast is great movies that everybody either knew were great or we realized later in time that didn't win the Oscars that they should have won, right? The most obvious examples of this. I already said what the first— Crimes of the Academy Awards. Crimes of the Academy Awards. That's perfect. All right. I have already said what the first movie is, but you guys know at this point I say the movie and then we cut to the trailer, so I'm going to do it again. Mad Max. My name is Max. My world is reduced to a single instinct. Survive. As the world fell, it was hard to know who was more crazy, me or everyone else. Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! Rated R, May 15th. Okay, so, Steve, here's what I want to say about Mad Max, and then I'm going to let you do your stats, okay? okay? Um, clearly, the movie 
everybody liked the most the year it came out. And yet, I think people felt compelled to not vote for it because they didn't know they could. It was like, well, Spotlight's about <laughs> something important. Even though we don't like it as much, we have to vote for it because it's about something important. All right, Steve, give me your stats. Yeah, Spotlight was like a mid-level made-for-TV movie. It's awful. They, they so, it boring. so boring. So <laughs> boring. Uh, Mad Max. This was released right at the beginning of the summer uh, influx. Yeah, May 15th, 2015, the studio had high hopes for a gigantic box office haul, and they were largely realized. This movie yeah. runs uh, two hours. It was directed by the great George Miller, mm-hmm. who directed uh, the first three Mad Maxes, produced but did not, and I think co-wrote, did not direct Babe. So yes, he, no, he did. He did he, direct Believe me. it or not, he did not direct Babe. He, he directed, didn't direct Babe. No, he, uh, one of his, um, I, think, I think one of his mentors directed ah. Babe. Uh, he directed Babe in the City. Okay. And that was a huge flop, unfortunately. Critically acclaimed, though. Good movie, too. Yes, I like it. I I really remember Babe. Babe Babe is a movie that we need now. It was about civility. Babe is awesome. Movie that Babe, it was, and and I thought it should have beat Braveheart, hands down. I don't know how Braveheart won. Babe was the best movie. Well, actually, I do know how, because that's their preference. Yeah. This movie got a lot of love from the Academy Awards in nominations. Ten Oscar nominations, although no acting and no writing Oscar nominations. Um, it was nominated for 10 Oscars. It won six. But before I get that, I, I skipped over. It was written by George Miller and two people who are not really writers. Uh, Brendan McCarthy, who's, who's just basically a storyboard artist. Okay. That and, makes sense. Yeah, that makes it? sense. I'm wondering if um, they decide to give him a writing credit because his storyboarding worked so much into the writing. So that, that, that could yeah. be. Um. And uh, Nick Lathras, who also uh, does, they don't. He doesn't have a lot of uh, screenwriting credits before Mad Max. It was not. It um, it won six Oscars for editing, all technical. Yeah, all, costume and makeup. Uh, there, there won sound, sound effects, production design. So you're right. They're all, all the things nobody technical. cares about. Oh, you forgot to mention. I care about. I, I really yeah. think they're neglected because there's so much artistry and a lot of that sure, stuff. Sure, but nobody but cares. The general right, right. public doesn't care. You also people have actually said, you know what? They should skip these awards. They should. <laughs> nah, <laughs> nah, right. nah, nah. So nah. you forgot to mention that the man George Miller who directed Mad Max also directed uh, Happy Feet, which is not a bad movie. Both Happy Feet, yes. Yeah, not and bad movies sequel. at all. I never, never saw Happy Feet. No, right. I saw Happy Feet. Oh, 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 wait a minute. Yeah, um, you got more? It was, it was um, produced uh, by Warner Brothers. It cost $150 million. That was wildly expensive. And it made about that much in the U.S. Worldwide, it made $376 million, which normally would be considered pretty good. I was going to say not great. Yeah, uh, well, it would, it would have need to have made about 300 Well, they got right at break-even. I it, thought this movie made a lot more money. Yeah. Well, um... Uh, it's worldwide haul would, would make it break even. You have to uh, yeah. the, the tradition is that you have to earn two and a half times which which you spend. Um, uh, but uh, they've made their money back in, in, in TV sales, and they're they're going to do some sequels. Yep, or maybe a prequel, prequel for for us with uh, Anya Taylor Joy. Oh, the, really? Okay, as the Charlize Theron character. That's a pretty good idea. I I read somewhere. Who knows if it's true? Because it's yeah. online that. Uh, 
George Miller and Char- Charlize Theron didn't get along too well in that, that desert heat. George Miller and Tom Hardy got along even worse. Is that right? Yep. Tom Hardy seems to be the, the common link here of who is the problem, even though you would assume it's Charlize Theron because she also has a reputation for being difficult. Mm-hmm. But I actually think that Tom Hardy was the major problem in That's this production. because I had not heard that. I, I he had problems read, with her IMDb and he had trivia. problems with George. Wow. Uh, before we get into that, what I yeah. want to say is um, rarely have I read reviews of a movie that were so glowing and the movie was even better than the reviews. Okay. And these were glowing reviews. Uh-huh. When I went to go see this movie, I personally, I'd never seen a Mad Max movie in my life. And I was actually excited. I was like, man, this kind of movie doesn't usually get these kind of reviews. So my interest was peaked already because these are not usually my kinds of movies. I'm pretty much anti-action film. I walked out of that movie and I said to myself, you know what? That's one of the best movies I've ever seen. <laughs> and I'll explain why. There are some things only movies can do. Books can't do it. The radio can't do it. This was something that only a movie could achieve. No other medium could have achieved what this movie did. It is so batshit bananas. Yes. So much fun. So much artistry. It is incorporating the world-class talents of so many different craftsmen no other art form can achieve this, can, can incorporate so many different disciplines to make one product. And the thing, you know, this is not a hidden gem. People love Mad Max. Yeah. And my point is, it's a great example of where the Academy fails. And it also ties into Babe. The people in the Academy are worried that if they give Best Picture to something like Babe and something like Mad Max, that it will somehow cheapen their award show. And that is horseshit. You give it out to the thing that's best, period. And and I truly believe that the people who voted for Spotlight liked Mad Max more. <laughs> I will not believe that the people are like, I like Spotlight the most. I think it was one of those things where they felt so anxious about, oh man, I like Mad Max the most, but it's got to be Spotlight. I mean, Spotlight's about molestation. And as we all know, people... Mad Max doesn't... Yeah. You know, it's not condemning racism. As we all know, <laughs> what audiences really want is to award movies about molestation <laughs> and not fantastic char- car sequences, car chases. I mean, they're so stupid. If they're actually concerned with the longevity of their award show, then they should realize that people don't give a shit about Spotlight. They don't want to hear about the... um the Catholic church molesting children. By the way, the people who got molested don't need spotlight the movie. And by the way, people knew about this before spotlight, the movie spotlight, the movie wasn't some smash hit that broke open, uh, (laughs) The, the, the Catholic Church sex scandal. It was it, kind of a self-congratulatory uh, feel to it. You know what broke open yeah. the Catholic Church sex scandal? Spotlight. Spotlight. The actual team <laughs> that made Spotlight. You don't need the movie. You don't need it. The team that did it, everybody already knows. It's just ridiculous. And if you want people to watch your award shows, this was the best example, the best time where you could have awarded the best movie of the year that was also the most fun. So if you had given the award to, and these two are not in the same year, but if you had given the award to Dark Knight Returns over Moonlight, I would have said that's a mistake. And now you're pandering to people who like that movie more than a better movie. This was the perfect opportunity to award the movie people liked that also happened to be the best movie. You so rarely get that opportunity. It's like the Democrats in 2008 to 2010. They have super majorities <laughs> and they squander all of it, right? It's funny that you should mention that because I think it was... Uh, a lot of people feel it was the Dark Knight not getting a Best Picture nomination yep. that led to the, uh, the, the deserting the five 
best picture nominee format right. for nominating everything that comes down the pike that yeah. you know in fact uh, it was it was the reason but it it had the exact opposite effect at least in this year it yeah. had the exact opposite effect it just it meant more out art house movies that nobody wanted to see got All right, nominated. So- Let's shift gears. I don't like movie podcasts to talk about the business of movies, and we've no. done that a lot today. That's true. Let's I, get in the art. I think what's more important are the movies themselves. That's my <laughs> whole point here, is that it's the movies that matter and nothing else. Nothing else matters but the art and the way it makes you feel. Let's talk yeah. about Mad Max. Uh, Mad Max is super fun. Podcast over. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, what about the social relevance? No, no. Um, well, it's not completely devoid of social relevance. Not at all. It's I mean, a great it's, movie. It's, yeah, it's it's the the classic, um, you know, rebels, you know, taking on the the the, the evil dictator. Absolutely. It's also about uh, protecting uh, women who are being uh, you know used as 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 breeders. Yeah, by this maniac. Yeah, yeah. literally, literally yeah. being used as uh, probably. I I haven't seen Handmaid's Tale. But if it was, if it is as effective about dealing with women's rights as Mad Max was, then more power, the more power to it. But I haven't, I haven't seen the series before. There is beauty in this movie. He makes he this George Miller is in love with the desert like David Lean was yeah, in right. Lawrence of Arabia, and and I tell you, he makes this. Uh, the desert seem even more beautiful than than David Lean did. Right, and what's funny is it's totally an illusion. Only in the sense that if you once again start talking about the business of movies, but apparently the desert caused a lot of tension on that set. People really <laughs> hated being out there. It looked great. Don't go. Like that's why I don't go to Burning Man, the music festival. Uh-huh. I didn't get anywhere near the desert. You know that's where bad things happen. Well, it's, it's funny because in both Lawrence of Arabia and this movie, the, the desert is something uh, to be fought to yeah. get rid of. Uh, Lawrence has in Lawrence of Arabia, he, falls he has in love these with idea, uh, the, this idealistic view. But uh, but as as one as the Anthony uh, Quinn character suggests, I, I think it's him. He said, you know, only Britishmen filled with you know who, yeah. who was brought up on greenery yeah. can love the desert. Right, you right, know, right. He, he sees it for what it is, something that wants to kill you. Yeah. So this movie for starters, but it's beautiful. It yeah. is beautiful. It's beautiful to look at. It's also. When you know that there's very little CGI in the movie and that these cars are really driving, the stunt choreography is just insane. And I mean, one of the most obvious examples of this is the guitar playing guy. <laughs> you know, he's that that conception alone <laughs> yeah. shows how what an original, off the chart original uh, nitro uh, 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 mind that George Miller has. How he's got nitroglycerin in yeah. his brain to to quote a movie. And, and it gets released this way. Look, it's awesome. It's great. For the most part, you're not. Most people are not talented enough to break the rules. Most mm-hmm. people should stay within the constructs of storytelling because it's actually helpful to them. It will <laughs> it will make their movie better as a result if they don't mess with the forms and boundaries of storytelling. However, if you are a genius. A creative genius. I won't be, you know, we throw in the word genius too much, like everybody's yeah. Albert Einstein. If you're a creative genius, do as you will, but you better be a creative genius. Yeah. Otherwise, it's going to blow up in your face. And when you see something like Mad Max Fury Road and you see the immense amount of creativity in this movie, you just realize what a creative genius he is. However, mm-hmm. that being said, I bet you if I said that to him, he would tell me there was a lot of, um, of collaboration. I bet you a lot of the things we saw in that movie were other people's ideas. And I think he would probably gladly admit that. I, I think you're absolutely true. And yeah, and 
this gets back to your point that um, it, it's got to be a lot harder to achieve art when you've got so many artists. Yeah, you know, right. if you're a painter, you, you're not bringing in a you know a color red specialist yeah. to, to to dab it on. There are some CGI. There have to be. With the stunts, otherwise, yeah. uh, otherwise they they got uh, suicidal stuntmen. <laughs> no, I think killed. they have suicidal stuntmen, Steve. I really, I mean, there are wires. Well, I mean, there's there some are that... wires. No, I don't think, I don't think a single human being in their physical acts were CGI'd, except for maybe someone getting like tossed into a hurricane. Well, th- there were some where, if that's true, then I I'm um astonished because it looks like almost like uh. I guess you can get thrown from uh, one of these cars. Yeah, and, no, they and still, were, they were, um, they survive. were. A lot of them were on but, wires. Um, some of them, some of the people look like they're being chewed up underneath the the cars, and and I don't. I, Those that might, might have, been, have been real stunts. Then that's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. One of the climax sequences is yeah. there's another truck that's pursuing. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, have we even gotten to the plot, or is it? Do you think it's necessary? I mean, here, let's. I'll summarize. We didn't do the plot on this one. I'm gonna summarize it real quick. Post-apocalyptic world, water's at a premium. Uh, Mad Max is mad. Uh, <laughs> uh, when I say mad, possibly insane, which is really good because I went and watched the earlier films after this one. And he's nowhere near as insane in those movies as mm-hmm. he is in this. I mean, the guy's got some serious PTSD in this movie. And I guess basically the little girl that he sees in the beginning of the film is... is this little girl is in his mind. In his I mind, but it's actually a little girl that he let die. Yeah. Um, might be or his, couldn't save or couldn't, couldn't save. Couldn't save, yeah. right. So, um, but the point is this. A post-apocalyptic world, Mad Max is this loner. He's being held captive by this... You could call him the king of this one desert city, and this king has these uh, like four or five concubines, women that he basically enslaves to breed with, and his top general, who is this amazing character named Furiosa. Does she have a last name? Or is um, Furiosa her last name? I'm not sure. I, actually, I think she, she states the name uh, when she meets... Uh, uh, later in the film. Yeah, well, her either her first or last name is Inferioso. We should know this, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, she's like his top general. The guy's name is Immortan Joe. This movie's full of great names. <laughs> and and she he tells her... It's like punk Dickensian yeah, naming, you know? He tells uh, Furiosa to basically go on this mission to acquire more water from, like, the... From another, like, a neighboring rival, like, sort of, like, post-apocalyptic city. And little does he know... But Furiosa has actually absconded with his concubines, and her goal is to is to escape with them and let them be free. She's a hero, noble intentions, and of course everything goes wrong. Mad Max escapes at the same time from his prison cell, meets up with these ladies, decides to help her, and the rest of the movie from there on out is a giant car chase sequence. I truly believe this is the film he always wanted to make in the Mad Max series. I bet you this is the one he wanted to make first, and he never had the means to do it. Because those other Mad Max movies, they're kind of indie. You Mm -hmm. know, you can see the wires a little bit. This is when he's given all the money in the world, and it actually makes something better, not worse. Usually a situation... I can only imagine two two situations in my life where a director sort of remade their own movie with a bigger budget and made it better. Evil Dead 2 and Mad Max Fury Road. And this was his fourth attempt at it, keep in mind. But this is the one. I think this is the one where he really made the vision that was in his mind. I I've seen um uh The Road Warrior. I saw it when mm-hmm. it came out and uh and the the other one uh It's Mad uh, Max. Beyond it's Fury Road. It's which Mad, one's it's, first? the first one's Mad Max. For, second one's Road, Road Warrior, Warrior. Yeah. and the third one is uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah. 
Uh, I can. I have yet. I've tried. I cannot watch Mad Max all the way through. It doesn't hold my interest. The first one. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. even seem post-apocalyptic, so, so, actually. It's not, because it's so bare bones. Yeah. Like, he doesn't have the budget in the first one. The second one was the was the most popular one until second this one recent one. second one was amazing. I thought the second one was yes, amazing. Yes, great. It was the most popular one until this recent one. This yeah. recent one is by far the most popular mm-hmm. one. I think it's easily the best one. I like. I, I kind of liked uh, Beyond Thunderdome 2. That's the least more, liked one. Yeah, I, I kind of like it, actually. Uh, I thought Tina, Tur- Tina Turner was really good. Yeah, you know, she she was perfect. She was supposed to do the uh, the color purple, but she didn't feel like she could she could play that role. Not of Seely, but of Seely's uh, you friend. Know, yeah, the 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 crooner, the nightclub crooner. Oh, she could have done it. She she, she felt could've... that she. I read that she felt that she didn't really uh, feel like she had the acting chops, so she went with this movie instead. Good for her. She's very good. She's I, very I appreciate good her humble uh, nature. I saw a documentary on her. She does seem humble. She just seems so cool. But she could have done it. I think she could have been in the color purple. I do too. Not actually. a great. I think I think Spielberg. Not was a right. great movie. It would have made it would have been better because Margaret Avery is. I, I don't think she she doesn't have the star power yeah. that. Tina Turner would have lent that role. All right, so this is what we do. We get we get off topic. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. We 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 we, we uh, <clears throat> let's get up. back to Mad Max. Arguably, Max is not the main character in this movie, and it's Furiosa. It's aren't you surprised though about that? I thought I was going to see a movie that primarily focused on Mad Max. He is almost ancillary. No problem with it. The movie's so enjoyable. Well, it surprises me. Surprised me too. Yeah. The movie's called Mad Max. I'd never yeah. seen one before. <laughs> but never once watching the movie did I actually think that. Was I'm like, wow, Max isn't the main character. This was only something I thought about later because I'm too busy having a shit eating grin on my face <laughs> the entire movie watching this thing. I mean, it is just, there's so much creativity in the film. Um, the that, beginning is too. When, um, when, when they hijack yeah. the, uh, when they, well, Furioso, uh, you know, starts and decides to uh, cut off from her what her motorcade or yep. security motorcade. That's right. The beginning, they have these incredible, this incredible car chase and these incredible uh, um, um, stunts, and you think this has got to be the high point. Yeah, yeah, and it isn't. <laughs> you know, I um, I have listened to interviews with Charlize Theron, and she is confident bordering arrogance in her interviews and you know what she can be uh because she's that good she's good she is a good actress she is a damn good actress um i have this thing i was telling a friend and i may have already said this on this podcast before so please tell me and i'll edit it out later if i've already said it there are categories of actors there are the majority of actors who are handsome people Right, and they are the best. Now, are you talking lead or character actors, or are leads, you are you gonna make the that? leads? Okay, the leads. Okay. The leads are the majority of lead actors in this in in this country and possibly the world are handsome people, male and female. But they are the best of the handsome people. Okay, they are not untalented, but they had to be handsome first. Handsome or beautiful, whatever you want to say, they had to be that first to get in the door. But they are still better than 99.9% of all the attractive people out there who think they should be actors simply based on the fact they're attractive. The best actors in the world are the Philip Seymour Hoffman's Kathy Bates. The ones who are not handsome people and literally are leading movies because they are that fucking good, right? Charlize Theron, just like Daniel Day-Lewis, is probably the looks, the beauty of them, if anything, take away from how good they truly are. I mean, these people are truly... Mag- and I probably not Daniel Day-Lewis. People know. He's got the rep as an amazing actor. Yeah. But I think Charlize Theron 
is if anyone ever said, you know, in the same breath that she's talented and beautiful, okay, but she is talented as shit. I mean, I think that, I think if she wasn't beautiful, I think if she looked like Kathy Bates, I think she'd still make it in Hollywood. I think she's that good. And I, I will not say that about George Clooney, Brad Pitt, maybe Tom Cruise. I think he's really fucking good. Um, but definitely not George Clooney and Brad Pitt. Um, definitely not mostly attractive actors. Definitely not Emma Stone. Definitely not Ryan Gosling. You know, none of these people are making it in Hollywood if they're not attractive. I think she might. I've seen enough of her resume at this point to be like, God damn, she is really good. And she knows it. She knows she's good, man. <laughs> you listen to her in the interviews. She knows it. I'm cool with that. I'm all right. I'm all right with her knowing it. You know, it's funny. when she first started off, I'm sorry, Leo DiCaprio. Easiest, easiest example of someone getting by in his looks. Not a good actor. Continue. No, and I, you know, I couldn't agree yeah. more with that. Early on in her career, it didn't look like that. Yeah. It didn't look like that. She was, she was always the beautiful young ingenue. Yeah. And maybe that, that was, that was, um, and she works with some pretty good uh, directors. She worked right. with uh, John Frankenheimer in yeah. that. Uh, uh, what was that? Uh, that uh, one with Ben Affleck, the uh, Reindeer, Reindeer Games. Look, no one's going to hire her to play yeah. Misery at that stage of her career. No, seriously. She like- was hired to be cute. She And she detested that movie. She um, she was in uh, Cider House Rules, and she played this beautiful object. Free spirit. Right, Something right. for Tobey Maguire oh, to acquire. Exactly. And yeah. that's all she was cast, cast at. And yeah. then she made Monster. She's good in it. She made Monster, and um, I'll give you this. The... Uh, for those people who think that she acted with her prosthetics, not fair. No, not, not at fair. all. She's that is a movie I will never watch again in my life. Did not enjoy <laughs> a second of it. I don't even think they should make movies about these people. <laughs> but goddamn, she's fucking amazing. And she's amazing in this. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, just her and Tom Hardy are both great in this movie. Yeah. But she's better. She's better because you see more of the trauma that she's endured. As natural, the director's more, much more interested in her character. Yeah, than Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy is relying on a lot of tricks, a lot of actors' tricks in this movie to portray past trauma that he can't uh, verbalize. She's got the same limitations Tom Hardy has. She's got, ex- she's got to, um, she's got to show past trauma without verbalizing it. She does a better job of it. She shows. Of, there, there are scenes where you catch in her eyes a vulnerability, That's right. which she re- resents having. Yeah. But she is she becomes dependent on Hardy. Yeah. At, before they they went to, they wanted to avoid Tom Hardy because they thought he was yeah. hostile to their interests. Once the, she becomes dependent, there there are a couple of times where she looks and she pleads, you know, you know, you, you help us. And it's almost like she resents having that vulnerability. It's it's a really way, complex look. Uh, she's not she nominated, is. right? No, no, right. no acting awards. Who's who's nominated <laughs> that year in Best Actress? Was was Rachel McAdams nominated? She better not have. She been. was nominated for Supporting Actress. You're right. I I am. That's outrageous. Give let let. She is a perfect example of your of your theory. Right. By the way, yeah, she is a very attractive person, and people are drawn to that attractiveness. Yeah. And she has enough talent. Yeah. Like you said, yeah. uh, probably uh, she's she is the one among the most talented, very good looking people. Yeah, but there, there, there's no gravitas to her. There's to her acting that I've ever seen. Well, you know, nobody's talking about her, and we're talking about Charlize. The reward, once again, is being remembered fondly. 
Yeah. That is the award. Yeah. That is the award. Those good-looking people, you know what they got more than, than talent is charisma. And maybe that's part... Some uh, of them. Some of them. The ability to shine charisma George Clooney, is, I suppose, a bit of talent. Some of them. George Clooney and Brad Pitt have charisma. Yeah. Tom Cruise can act. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, there are attractive actors out there. Daniel Day-Lewis, he can act. Sean Penn, he can act, right? These guys are attractive, but they can act their asses off. George Clooney, Brad Pitt, charisma, Leonardo DiCaprio, nothing. Actually, Leonardo DiCaprio was a great actor when he was like 16 years old. Legitimately great actor. Isn't it amazing? Maybe he lost maybe it was it. something, uh, his, his total immersion. And it doesn't happen with all chi- child's actors. Uh, some of them turn into really fine actors, and some of them never escape I don't know the, the the bubble they're in, and you never see a trace of of uh, he got truth worse. in their acting. He got worse yeah. though. He was if you had seen what's Ian Gilbert Grape in Basketball Diaries, you would have said here's another Sean Penn, mm-hmm. and he wasn't. He isn't um, until Once Upon a Time in 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 Hollywood, which I thought he, he was. It's his no. best performance it's, by far. It's his best. It's not better than uh, Ian Gilbert Grape. I'm sorry. As an adult, it's his best. performance. But the problem is. He's actually not good in the majority of that movie, and he's amazing in one scene. I I, I think he's perfectly fine, even when uh, when he's when he's yelling at the hippies. I mean, That's, I think it's pretty. I, I think it's pretty pretty authentic. I couldn't get over it's his for accent. Comedy. I, I, I hated his accent, and I didn't think he was very mm-hmm. good in the movie. But I think it is his best performance as an adult. But a lot of it hinges down on that one scene in which he actually expressed human emotion. The, and, the one with the little girl. Yeah, and he didn't just yell. Yeah. I, but but also. The actual acting scene where he is acting yeah. a role in in television, he he shows it's pretty clever and it's pretty intelligent. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Okay, so Steve. Uh, but anyway, I didn't actually write down any questions uh-huh. for Mad Max. I don't really have any for you. You know what? Th- th- these two movies are so good that it's okay we didn't do our homework because I yeah. didn't write any questions for for my All movie. Right, I don't know why. So we spent a bunch of time ranting about politics. Well, I do have I do yeah. have a question. Oh, though. please. Um, but I've I kind of already already asked it. Why? Why did they choose not to focus on Mad Max? They wanted the franchise. Maybe the suits said, you know, because uh, suits just love the idea of restarting uh, mm-hmm. franchises because yeah. they see uh, gold bars. Is this a concession? No, no, I don't think George Miller would ever do such a thing. Um, I think there's two things. A, he's already made three movies about Mad Max. Four, Max saving these women. Like, let's say he ran to him and was like, oh, I got to save him. It just doesn't work as well because Furiosa's got the backstory. Mm-hmm. She's the one who knows. Like, I don't know. It it's just, funny, too, because they don't really go into the backstory. No, they don't. It's all written on her face. That's right. Yes. It's just kind of like, why does a genius do anything? You know what I mean? <laughs> There's no reason to even wonder. He probably had enough power to do what he wanted. He yeah. probably just knew that he'd have a better movie as a result. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, well, let's get to the pitches then. Okay. Uh, you first. Okay. Stay with me on this. All right, all right, all right. It's the first half, the pitch is the Ten Commandments. Oh, my God. <laughs> Moses leading leading yep. the uh, mm-hmm. the children of out of the desert, yep. right? Yep. To the green place. They're, okay. they're searching for the green place that... That uh, that Furiosa remembers as a child, but is doesn't exist. Doesn't exist, or or it's been if, sanded over. I I think maybe she kind of romanticized some of it at Possibly. the beginning, but there was something there. There was something yeah. there. Second half, Lawrence of Arabia. They're storming okay. the castle. Okay, you know? I dig. I dig. It's a bad pitch. Um, yes, I yeah. don't like that they're too <laughs> similar to each other. 
They're right. desert movies, but yeah. you know, the whole thing's in desert. Here's mine. Okay. Keep mine. This has to be bad pitches. Uh-huh. Mine is uh, Silkwood meets Rambo. <laughs> and the only reason I went with Silkwood is I'm hmm. trying to think of a, f- uh-huh. a strong female character fighting against the system. Right. Then you mix it with Rambo, and that's what you get. <laughs> and my problem with that pitch is it might too be too good. It might actually convince a Hollywood filmmaker. <laughs> that's a legitimate pitch. Yeah. This has to be bad. I used a bad movie, Ten yeah. Commandments, and and I used a great hey. movie in a grotesquely inappropriate way. Ten Commandments is not a bad movie. <sighs> it's deliciously bad i'll give you uh, that's as much as i can say it's deliciously deliciously good i don't Uh, know what you're talking about okay um best line now the problem with both of these movies Mm -hmm. is there's not a plethora of of of, uh witty dialogue absolutely not. (laughs) in fact in the next one there's there's a stretch of uh like i think 28 minutes where there's no dialogue that's right anyway um this 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 is uh I kind of like this line that, uh, and I'm not counting narration because there's pretty good narration in there. Yeah. In this, um, this is where Mad Max, I, I think he, he's seen that his beloved car has been appropriated during mm-hmm. one of these uh, car chase scenes, yeah. and he says, I, I don't know if he's thinking to himself or he says it. He says, "How much more can they take from me? <laughs> they got my blood." Now it's my car. <laughs> you know, I don't even remember that line. I don't even. I don't. I really like that line because those was a, it was a comedy line because that's the priority. You know, yeah, look, they got they got my blood. Yeah, they, just, they literally got my blood. They right. they refer to Mad Max. Yeah. as the what the blood bag. Yeah, that's right. Because they're taking uh, his blood because all the the what are those boys called? Yeah, uh, they're they're all painted white well, and everything. They're actually dying. They're all dying of radiation poisoning. Yeah, the yeah. sick boys or something. Yeah, which is why uh, he needs uh, the, the the king needs his 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 uh, women to breed to have healthy babies. Yeah, so like all they're like a there's a third main character in this movie we haven't talked about. Um, I forget the actor's name. Nicholas Hoden. Thank you. Another wonderful wonderful actor. He's definitely good in this, and I was surprised they hired him. Like, for a big movie like this, he mm-hmm. certainly lacks star power. I don't know how famous he is in England. He's an English actor. He was on a very popular teen show called Skins, which is, by the way, where um, the guy from uh, from Slumdog Millionaire got his start. What's that actor's name? Oh, uh, Pat- uh, Dev Patel. Dev Patel. Um, he got his, they got their start in the same teen soap opera. Um, so Nicholas Holt okay. might be more famous well, we'll in say England. Before that... He was the child in About a Boy. Yes, he was, and he's quite which, good in that. I is would that be considered a hidden gem? Because that no, screenplay maybe. is one of my favorite all time screenplays. Maybe we'll do that for, sometimes. For maybe yeah. it is a hidden gem at this point. Just a wonderful movie. Obviously, it was popular enough that they made it into an American TV show. Ugh, yeah, so and it was abysmal. Yeah, so I'm not so sure. Okay, I don't have a best line in this movie. If I have a best line, it's the guitarist playing his guitar. <laughs> like, if you think of anything that's going to... I think and it's probably one of the most famous images from this movie is the flame-throwing guitarist. It's just so outrageous. Well, what a conception. Yeah. What a conception. I, now, why, why do they have him? It's like the For king fun. needs a score. He yeah. needs... It, it's, it's almost like a, like a flag. Same, you know, same how, reason that Robert Duvall put on Flight of the Valkyries as they were <laughs> landing in Vietnam on the shores of Vietnam. Just to get just to get the adrenaline of his troops flowing. It's yep. like a like like the uh, the American flag or whatever flag yep. you're flying under is supposed to inspire you. It's the trumpet it's boy. So he's amazing. The, he's the trumpet boy. But he's a disfigured guitarist chained he's muzzled by the way. He's muzzled. It's outrageous. <laughs> okay. Um any final thoughts on Mad Max before we move on? 
I just remember this one uh, uh, stunt. Amorosa and 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 the women and Mad Max they're they're in a tanker, yeah, huge tanker, which was also true in yeah. um uh, the uh, uh, the Road Warrior. Okay, and there's another tanker that follows them, and is pursuing them, and uh, I think it's a tanker. Mm-hmm. It's a huge truck, and that explosion is one of the most astonishing stunts. Yeah. Done right at the uh, at the uh, you know uh, the denouement. It, yeah. It's incredible. It's right. just phenomenal. It's so good. You know, it's how good it is that when you find when when the ending does happen, it's almost a letdown compared to you know the uh, the, the end. By the end of that movie, I am standing up, cheering and clapping. <laughs> Here's my final thoughts on Mad Max. If you felt, guys, that maybe we shortchanged Mad Max a little bit. What I want to say is, and this is no insult to Mad Max, because you know it by this point, I love this movie. It is not, it's like the opposite of a cerebral film. This movie is meant to be felt. You can think about it later, but this movie is meant to be felt. It is enjoyed. It is emotional. It is a thrill ride with content and in a much better way than these stupid Marvel movies, which, by the way, try to get you to think too much. Um, do you know Marvel was talking about like genocide like get that shit out of here Mad Max is, what is the word for when you it's like something that's just immersive in your feelings do you uh, what is the opposite of cerebral um well generally we considered um idiocy but, that, no, but that, that's no, not no. what this is I know no. I don't I understand what you're yeah um it, it's all about the visceral I guess. visceral thank yes. you that's actually what it is. this is a visceral experience it's pure, it's almost pure visceral uh there, there, there are some. Yeah. There's some. There's, like you said, there's some emotional content yeah. and lies mostly with, um, uh, with Furiosa. Although yeah. the Nicholas Hope character is kind of touching. He's great. Look, he's I, a convert. He's a convert. He, he is. totally believes in the king at the beginning, and he and he and he he. Um, he also sees the light before he dies. Yes. All right. So here's what I'll say. The only, I would never have chosen Mad Max as a hidden gem. I chose it because it was the perfect example to explain what the Oscars do now which is they don't even reward the movies they like. They don't reward the movies they like. They only reward the movies that they think are important. Important, important, important. Movies aren't important. Sorry, guys, you're talking to the two biggest movie lovers you ever heard, but they're not important. It's important to me, to my life, and to my enjoyment, but I am not so egotistical and self-centered as to think that the thing that I enjoy affects the world in some grand sense. It's not solving world hunger. It's not solving racism. It's not solving war. It's not solving division. It's doing none of these things. Art does not affect the world in that way. Most great, most great artists uh, that I've read um, basically believe that too. And by the way, for any of you uh, ninnies who think it does, look at <laughs> Florence. If you know anything about Florentine history, right, the whole city centered around art. But the politics were as <laughs> deadly and vile as ever. At no point, yeah, that art didn't stop the Borgias, yeah, did it? <laughs> yeah. At no point ever, uh, well, forget the Borgias, the Medici's, right? At no point ever did the art make the Medici's a less violent group of people. Um, so you know, just saying, if you and that was a, that was a, literally a society that revolved around art, where they said art is our national identity, is art. And it still didn't change anything. The people were poor in Florence. There was murder, corruption, the whole deal. So, yeah, the point is, you know. I will disagree on, on one point, And that what? is uh, art is, I think, it's more centered uh, around our society now. Well, stuff that claims to be art, that that, that pre- has pretense to art. Because, you know, it, mass media has changed um, the, yeah. the, the role of, of, of art. And we have more, uh, what do you call it, uh, we have more spare time. 
than the people who were out in the fields and you know they they didn't have time to go to the museums to to look at the art. But if you're talking direct yeah, influence, direct impact. if you're talking direct influence, you're yeah. right. You're no, right. look, it, it it's impacts my life. Yeah. It makes me think about my life. But then guess what? I don't make any changes to my life. <laughs> I just think about it. Have you ever voted differently because of a movie you never, saw? Never. Okay. Never. <laughs> uh, I didn't think slavery was a good thing before 12 Years a Slave. Didn't need didn't need 12 Years a Slave to show. But you know what? It, it, it's important. Amazing in that, film. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I completely yeah. agree. Uh, but not an amazing film because it's about slavery. An amazing film because it's an amazing film. Period. It's in a way, it's, it's, it's more along the visceral emotionally visceral um it's not an intellectual movie either i mean nobody needs to be told oh, that yeah. slavery is bad but classically you know? made i mean i think 12 years of slaves is a perfect example of it would have won all those oscars if nobody saw it and every review of that movie shortchanged it every positive review of that movie shortchanged it because all they did was talk about how you need to see this movie it'll make you learn so much about slavery and nobody actually said hey you know what this director hell of a director Look at look at what he did. Look at his shots, his music, his storytelling. Instead, all they cared about was the subject of the movie. And that's great because that is important to the film, but it's not what makes the film good. The subject of a film is not what makes it good. The, 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 it's a starting off point. Yeah. It, it's the hanger that you no, hang your clothes on. you can make a movie about absolutely nothing, and it can be a great movie. No, I'm talking in in instances where you where um the plot is important. It uh, can be the hanger right. you hang your clothes on. The clothes are what you know. Movies have ah, that's a yeah. that's a crummy end. It has to be well made. <laughs> the movie has to be well made first. Yeah. All right, let's move on. So the second movie was your pick, Steve. You actually recommended it to me like maybe six, seven months ago or longer. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. One of the best movies I've ever seen. It's the Black Stallion. If you want to believe in magic. In beauty, in friendship, and freedom, believe in the Black Stallion. The biggest, the blackest, and the strongest, the most beautiful horse that ever was. Francis Ford Coppola presents Walter Farley's timeless classic, Whose Time Has Come, The Black Stallion. The story of a legendary horse who could only be tamed by a young boy's love. Together, they survive a shipwreck. And the dangers of an island wilderness. You saved my life. They meet a forgotten man. He'll be moving, he'll be making that rhythm. You just go on with him, see? Who helps them bring a legend to life. I've seen a horse that defies the imagination, that runs like a demon possessed at speeds beyond belief. It could be the greatest sensation in racing history. The Black Stallion. An unforgettable adventure, a motion picture of extraordinary beauty, a story that will make your heart race, your spirit soar, but most of all, it will make you believe in the Black Stallion. The Black Stallion, um, 
I, I, we squeeze this into uh, is the uh, you could squeeze it into hidden gems. Although today's topic isn't necessarily focused on being a hidden gem. It's a hidden gem. I think it is because a lot of people don't know about it or forgotten. But I think I think most people have heard the title maybe, but they haven't seen it. And that the is book a series big is mistake. more famous. The the novel series is more famous than the movie. That's interesting because I, I've I've uh, my I've sister read all those books, but I'm positive that the books are more famous than That's the movie. Interesting. I, I didn't know. Anyway, uh, the Black Stallion was released. Uh, October 17th in 1979. Yep. It had been shot in 1977 and set, uh, 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 set on the shelf. And we're going to discuss a little bit later. It's going to come up as to why they, they shelved it. Okay. Uh, runs about the same as Mad Max, uh, 118 minutes. Okay. It was directed by Carol Ballard, who up to that point, I don't think ever shot a feature film, if I'm not mistaken. He was a documentary filmmaker, but it's since he, 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 he did the astonishing Never Quiet Cry Wolf, yeah. which feels like a documentary, uh, and Fly Away Home. It was written by a trio of writers, kind of interesting. Melissa Matheson, who became Mrs. Harrison Ford, she also oh. wrote... Um, Mrs. X. Harrison Ford. Yes, Mrs. X. Harrison Ford. She, uh, she just ha- passed away about five oh. years ago. Um, she also wrote E.T. Okay. And That's huge. That's a gigantic. Yeah. And uh, Indian in the Cupboard. Pauline Kael uh, once referenced um, Melissa Matheson saying that sometimes writers can be stereotyped or, or typecast too. And she and the other um, uh, writer, Janine uh, Rosenberg, kind of, they both got kind of uh, typecast as uh, writers of kids' movies. Uh, Jean, um, uh, Rosenberg wrote uh, uh, The Journey of Nanny Gantz. Nothing wrong with having a resume that says Black Stallion, E.T., and Indian in the Cupboard. Nothing wrong She'd with it. She'd be very proud of that. Yes, yeah. absolutely. But, you know, you'd like to see what, what else they could do. Maybe maybe that's all they wanted to E.T. do. E.T. alone, you can hang your hat on. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And she, she actually got nominated for an Oscar for that. William D. Whitliffe was the other uh, screenwriter. Now, get this. He wrote two of our... Um, uh, uh, of our hidden gems. Oh. He wrote Barbarossa, that wonderful Willie Nelson mm-hmm. uh, Western, and he also wrote the, the teleplay for Lone, Lonesome Dove. Oh. This man. guy is versatile. And we did those in the same podcast. I don't think... Well, did we not do those in the same... I thought that was our Western. We should, because... We, well, my Western was... Or maybe we, maybe it was. I think it was Barbarossa and Lonesome yeah, Dove. Yeah, because remember, we, I, we also did that James Stewart one, and I, which I thought was for uh, Westerns. But but that wasn't the I same one, did, though. You know, you, you might be right. You might be right. We've done all three of those movies. But this is a guy who knows how to write movies. Yeah. Br- brilliant stuff that people forget about. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> or, 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 he, 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 um, he wrote Legends of the Fall. I thought that was kind of... Not a great movie that I really like. I didn't like it either. I like it. Just uh-huh. not a great movie. But it's not a... It's a I didn't like it. I, I didn't like it. And any movie that says... Uh, he died well because he got eaten by a bear. <laughs> he also made Country, which is a movie largely forgot with uh, Jessica Lange and Mel Gibson okay. when they were, all these movies came out. Uh, mm-hmm. Same year as Places in the Heart. Mm-hmm. They were all focused on the farm. The cinematography was by one of my favorite cinematographers, Caleb Dachanel. Okay. He is phenomenal. He shot The Right Stuff, okay. wow. which was, uh, it, it broke new ground. Yeah. He, he made The Natural, which looks pretty this movie is beautiful that movie is pretty that movie's not good it's not and it 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 um really screwed over the source material okay. which is a fine first novel okay cool um anyway he, he he's he's astonishing he he's he's a great cinematographer he did uh, also shot last temptation of christ which i know you you really uh, impressed with uh, yep. uh, the look of that movie it was spo- it was scored by carmine coppola 
And uh, like everything else in this movie, well, this is getting is into that the Francis Ford Coppola's father. It is. Yeah, it is. Because I, I knew Francis Ford Coppola. I knew Coppola's dad did the score for The Godfather, which is, you know, an all-time score. Yes, and then The Godfather Part Two, which he won an Oscar for. Uh, it was produced by Coppola's Zoetrope Studios Okay, before it went under. I think it went under. <laughs> and it was released by United Artists. And it may, it cost only about uh, less than $3 million, but it made 10 times that much. It made $37 million, which in today's market isn't much, but back then, that's pretty good. That's not one. It won a, a special Oscar... For uh, sound effects editing, which is now because of our all of the effects-driven movies, now there that's a, it's a competitive category. But that one, back then it was it was a, a special category. And it was nominated for best editing, completely deserved, and best supporting actor for Mickey Rooney. Okay, okay, uh, and 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 that's uh, it. Stars Kelly Reno, young child actor yep. who was picked more for his uh, ability to ride the horse than his acting. And they both turned out. That's okay. Yeah, but that's, well, Im- that's important. Well, it's important because you get a naturalness of his acting that yeah. you wouldn't have gotten with if they picked a member of the Brady Bunch. Also, know? it meant he knew. Did he know how to ride a horse in advance? Yes, that's really uh, as important. I, understand. I understand. That's really important. All right, so I might be wrong on that, but I, I, I it's been a long time since I read that, but I think he did. Also, there's Terry Gar and uh, Hoyt Axton as the beloved father. Okay, here's the first thing I want to say about this movie. It is the most beautiful movie I have seen, just, just you know, in terms of photography, since the assassination of Jesse James. That is the first thing. I mean, the cinematography alone is a reason to see this movie. Mm. But here's what I want to say. Okay. I like really well-made movies for children. And I'm going to explain this. I was telling this to a friend recently. And this has happened to me more recently in my life. If you watch a movie that is specifically made for children, but is extremely well-made, okay? Like a work of art. Here's what happens. The rules become so tight. All right, this is almost the opposite of Mad Max. The rules become so tight, so constricted, that you have to make something that is essentially purely about the human condition without any fluff. You cannot add... You, you can't kill people violently. You can't do all these things you could do if a movie was made for adults. And as a result, what you actually end up getting is something... Look, fairy tales can be good when basically they represent the human condition. And children's really, really, really well-made children's entertainment... For kids aren't fairy tales, but as when you watch them as an adult, if they're really good, they kind of have the same effect that a great fairy tale has. Um, which is you're like watching a myth. You're watching a, a story that is stripped down to its essentials. And it, it has to be stripped down to its essentials because there's so much they can't do. No nudity, no adult relationships, no cursing, no complex political themes. You have to get down to something more childlike, which is really what is being alive like. And this movie hits a grand slam in that regard. This movie's running on pure magic. You know what I mean? From beginning to end, this movie is running on pure mythos and magic. You watch this movie and it teleports you to a fantasy world um, that is your own. It's really, it's quite an accomplishment. Um, I'll just give the plot real quick. Young boy is on a ship, I think in like the Indian Ocean. 
I think it's I think the the, the credit said um uh, off the uh short uh North Africa. Okay, so the coast of North Africa, he's with his dad. He's on some ship. I guess his dad's a businessman of some sort. There's a horse on this ship who's like being traded by like either Turkish or Arab traders or North African traders. I don't remember. The the horse is extremely wild. It's being kept up in a cage, right? The boy kind of like goes near it, and then like the guy who owns the horse, the trader's like, "Get out of here, boy!" You know what I mean? Kind of like that. So the boy's already his his interests are piqued about the horse, and then of course there's a massive storm. The ship goes down, and only the horse and boy survive on this abandoned island. Um, the boy's father is dead. I mean, it's pretty like serious. And what occurs next? is one of the riskiest um, productions I've ever seen, which is the boy and the horse have to learn to survive together on this island. And the relationship at first is extremely tenuous. And here's what's interesting. The director is shooting in magic hour. He's shooting when the sun is going down. And in this sequence that the boy is basically bonding with the horse, where the horse is turning from a fearful enemy to a friend to the boy, he's got to make certain things happen within the magic hour, or the whole day is lost, and they have to wait a whole other day to do this again. By the way, what movie did we just review that I said, it seems like the whole movie was it's, shot? Uh, the last one we just did. It's, yeah. um, it's uh, what do you call it? Uh, you know, the one in Ireland. Oh my gosh! Was it your pick local or mine? hero? Local hero. That's local it. hero. That's my. Oh my gosh! I but can't the difference yes. is, local hero. They're trusting adult actors to carry off something relatively simple. In this, this young male actor, this child, has got to basically cajole this horse into first not like because they, they do this like they're basically playing tag. The boy chases the horse. The horse chases the boy. Yeah. And they keep doing this back and forth until eventually. The horse lets the boy ride him. And it's such a risky thing to do in the magic hour because if you don't get the horse to act appropriately, you lost the whole day. And because they... I would love to see a making of this movie. Because they succeed, the half... What would you say? Half this movie takes place on the island? Uh, less than half. Uh, I think... I think uh... The, uh, not giving anything away. Yeah, the boy gets rescued, and and yeah. and, uh, and the horse gets rescued, and they go back to their uh, midwestern. Uh, Who rescues him? I don't remember. It, it was a fishing boat. Okay. It was a couple of fishing uh, yeah. f- uh, fish- fishermen, and I think they're um, Italian. It was shot. This part of the movie, the first part of the movie, yeah. was shot in in Italy, yeah. in Sardinia, uh, and uh, they, uh, they 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 go back home. Mm-hmm. To you know the typical post-war, you know, almost a fantasy, a myth. Yeah, and it's uh, the South, though. Is it, no, it's no. not. Is it New York State? It's actually shot in Oregon. Is it supposed? I, where's it supposed to be? You know, I don't think I'm not or sure. Or is it that a fairy tale? Say, I think it's know. the Midwest. I think okay. it's the Midwest. Okay. Uh, yeah, basically, uh, it it's has the idyllic um, yeah. Midwestern town. It's America. It's like you yes. got your suburb, you got your big city, yeah. you got your farmland, you got your country land. I mean, you literally have it all. Yes. But the point is. The island sequence of this movie is such a gamble. There's so much time spent with just the boy and the horse. And it's the most magical part of the movie, hands yes. down. I mean, it is just... That see, that part of the movie in itself is a masterpiece. And I'm happy to say the movie loses no steam once they get off the island. Once they get off the island, the movie is just stunning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's merely stunning. Yeah, The first uh, uh, 40 minutes or so... It, it's it's about it's about as pure. You use the word pure magic. Yeah, the word purity uh, 
it gets tossed about when you have sequences without any dialogue that's yeah. considered pure cinema, but a lot of times that's hokum. Yeah, right. It's not here. No. Not here. This movie is so purely visual in absolutely the best possible sense. But the storytelling is clear. The, yes. boy, is tr- the boy is trying to make friends with the horse on yes. this island, and the horse is terrified. The storytelling is crystal clear. So it's not like... It's not interpretive. It's not that kind of visceral experience. You understand what is happening from a basic story mechanic standpoint. Right. You're not going to be scared off no. due to you know uh, so, some pretentious overall vision. No. It's, it's, this is yeah. primal. This kid has just lost his father. Uh, after he wakes up on the beach, he's yeah. crying um, yeah. You know, because he, he's completely he's lost. Scared. He, he's, he's He could be starving in, in no time. They, yeah. they figure out a, a way about that. And then he hears the sound. He hears this really wild scream of a horse. Yep. The horse had a bunch of ropes tied to him. Yeah. Actually, I think the the boy does something. He opens the door to his stall yeah. and allows him allows the the uh, and the horse explodes out. Explodes out. Nearly like kills out. the boy. In fact, but the boy has has uh, laid the groundwork. You said yeah. he saw him earlier yeah. in the. In That's the mo- right. He he lay he he swipes a couple of sugar cubes from yeah. his father. Yeah. Who's playing poker? Yeah. And um. He lays it on the, uh, I guess, the windowsill yeah. of the porthole yeah. out of from the stall, and reluctantly the horse eats it. Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's really kind of a charming way of uh, kind of introducing it. But once once you get back onto the island, he has the only thing he has other than his PJs. Yeah, it was because yeah. the wreck happened at night. Is is a knife his father had just given him the knife the mm-hmm. night before. Oh, and also a little trinket in yeah. the form of an Arabian horse. Yep. Yep. Which is, and we'll get into that yeah. in, a, in a second. He cuts the he cuts the um, uh, the horse loose, and fortunately, the harness everything falls off. Okay, well, you know, maybe that's realistic, maybe it isn't. But from that point on, this child needs a replacement. He needs something, and yeah. that horse does too. But the, the child has to have something to fill the void of, of no humans. His his father mm-hmm. is gone, and and how how he breaks down the horse's defenses is just. Right. Wonderful. Yeah. It's spectacular. There's an instance. He goes diving for some seaweed. Yeah. He, he discovers he, he has a taste for seaweed, and yeah. it, it, it gives him nutrition. So he decides to get a whole bunch of seaweed, and he fills a turtle's shell full yeah. of, of seaweed, holds it out, and the, and, and the horse very reluctantly comes and, uh, and gets it. And there's a human, there's a, there's a what, is it, what is it called? Uh, personification or... or uh, it, uh, it's like, it's like, anthropomorphizing anthropomorphizing the horse yeah. and then there's kind of a flirtation and a reluctance kind of thing that you, you would expect between maybe a little boy and a girl you know but except the horse is never anthropomorphized like basically the horse never takes on the qualities that a horse couldn't take on true so, true but the horse never talks kind of a, the horse like even like in that stupid uh harrison ford movie about him and that dog oh, yeah the dog is like you know it might as well be homeward bound like the dog might as well be talking <laughs> he has human he has human yeah. facial expressions that are cgi yeah. the horse the horse yes. is always a horse in this film that's true he, they don't he's always a horse of course of course the horse right <laughs> <laughs> but they have a back and forth that is very relatable on a human level. Yeah. You know, suddenly the boy walks away and, and the horse follows but him. Believable. But when he turns around, yes, it's believable in yeah. the context of uh, animal psychi- psychiatry. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. He turns around and then the, and then the uh, horse, not wanting to show too much interest, kind of backs away. Yeah. Yeah. And he turns around and he follows him again. And then finally he decides, you know, the, the horse eats some of the seaweed, right? Yeah. He decides to hold some out because he knows it. He, 
he can he can win the horse over if he gets him to eat from his hand. Yep. And there's this beautiful magic hour as the sun is setting silhouette where you just see the head of the horse leaning forward to 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 take and all you see from the boy is basically yeah. is his arm. Yeah. And he just nudges closer and closer in what seems like an eternity. And all of a sudden, his lips start to smack when yep. he gets close to the seaweed. This is as close to animation. Yeah. It's perfect. I don't know how long it took them to get this shot. And it's in the it magic hour. It is, it, yeah, because it's, it, it's completely silhouetted. And, you, and in the background, you see golden water. It is one of the most astonishing sequences I've ever seen. Okay, so Steve, who's the most robbed uh, person in this movie for an Oscar? I'd argue it's the horse. <laughs> the horse? <laughs> Well, it would have to be horses because they uh, there there were several different horses. Okay, the main horse where that has the human contact with with the boy and they, he, the boy starts a fire. Who's the magic hour horse? It, that, it's this horse. That that All horse deserved one, an Oscar because so much of that production is riding on that horse in that very narrow window of time, yes. doing everything that the director <laughs> needed to do. I mean, come on. And again, it couldn't have taken that many takes because, um, you know, it only cost $2.7 million. It, yeah. The budget didn't, didn't, didn't get blown. Um, they, they use a different horse for the racing sequences. Yeah. There is this terrific uh, scene before the uh, seaweed scene yeah. in which the, the horse expresses concern, in which um, the boy is asleep on the sand and this cobra comes up to yeah. him and, and rears back. And out of nowhere, the horse comes and tramples the snake that's right and that that kind of suggests the mutual affection yeah has has started the horse saved his life yes oh absolutely all right so let see when did you first see this film did you see it in theaters i saw it when it came out in 79 and How old I, was, were you? I was 17 years old okay and you know what didn't like it yeah i was gonna I mean, say i i liked it because it was pretty and here this is one of my Hard questions for a 17 year old boy to admit to liking that movie yeah. Well, I, I I liked it, but I didn't love it. Okay. Okay. The way um, I think an adult would, which my my primary question about this is, and this is the reason it was held, it was canned for two years. Mm-hmm. The executives felt that do children want to see an art house movie? <laughs> okay. I'm my question is, can a child love this movie as much as an adult? And Absolutely. I say no. Oh, I say yes. Possibly, especially nowadays. Nowadays, where they're bombarded with jokes uh, in yeah. in in, in uh, you know between fart jokes and action and action sequences, yeah. can a child completely immerse himself? And if, if that child can, he he is going to be he's going to be a convert to movies for life. This is why you have to curate your child's entertainment. I curate what Ooh, my son good, watches. Good point. I make sure my son watches things like Winnie the Pooh, which are slow, methodical, immersive. Uh, they use sound and music as much as very little dialogue. I show him things that aren't like, here I am, like this guy on this rad tunes, and here's a joke, and here's an action sequence. Like none of that. Like I make sure he watches things that are truly classy, right, that are well-made for children. Um, and I think also children are wonderful in the sense that you can show them something and they can just enjoy it without thinking about it. And they can be enjoying it just as much as you. I hope that, I hope that's true. I, I really do. Um, because this is the perfect movie for children. Magic doesn't need to be analyzed. That's why it's magic. Yeah. And I think a, a child can get the magic of this film, if not better than an adult. And all right, so let, let's move forward a little bit in this movie. He gets back home. All right. He has brought the horse with him. That is his horse, right? <laughs> 
and he tries to keep the horse at the his... fishermen rescue him and he he practically yeah. wants to jump off the boat because they're leaving yeah. the horse behind yeah and the horse stays on the shore and eventually he actually swims out so right. they figure out a yeah semi-plausible way yeah they both go home so he first keeps the horse at home and it's no. not working no. right it's like he tries to keep the horse in his front yard the horse like escapes goes into the city um and there's an unbelievable i mean there's an unbelievable sequence in the city that is like it's like once upon a time in america or something i mean mm-hmm. the kid goes in the city to find his horse he runs into like this this uh, African-American, what kind of job does this guy have? Is he a cab He's driver? He's pulling a cart. Yeah. He's pulling a cart with a, with an old white horse, which, trivia, it's the same white horse in a completely opposite movie uh, that was made the year after but released the year before, Animal House. Remember that horse that uh, has a heart oh, attack? Okay. That horse was in, was uh, driven by um, the character, I think it's Snow or something like that. Um, so that horse is just a working actor. He's a working actor. <laughs> they, they, they got their... Uh... All right, so the point is, that sequence, once again, it, it might be the most mythological sequence in the movie. I mean, you're not even sure it's really happening. Uh-huh. Like, you're not even sure this is real, but basically, the the old African-American man tells him where he thinks the horse might be. And, God, correct me Clarence if I'm Muse, wrong. I believe, yeah. that actor's name was. He correct- died before four days before the movie was released. Correct me if I'm wrong. The horse ended up escaping to Mickey Rooney's house. He winds up in Mickey Rooney's barn because right. we don't see this, but yeah. uh, when, when he finally does track it down with the help of yeah. the Clarence Muse character telling him here's where you need to go yeah. and the old man is like a like a something out of, uh, out of this out movie's of like the odyssey it's i mean really it's yeah. mythological like there's so much destiny in this movie so the young boy goes to uh the barn where it turns out guess what an old horse racing trainer lives <laughs> played by mickey rooney and his only his only oscar nomination oh it was his fourth oh his fourth yeah, okay so lots. so excuse me um First in years, first in decades, but yeah. And of course, what they fought, what they discover together is that this horse is lightning fast, <laughs> possibly the fastest horse in the country, which leads to my favorite sequence in the movie. Um, in, in a movie full of amazing sequences, what ends up happening is Mickey Rooney has a sense that this horse is lightning fast, but he also knows this horse is a wild horse and will only let one person ride him, and that's the boy. So they decide they want to get this horse in a race, all right? And not for any nefarious purposes other than just to show that this horse is the best. This is the fastest horse in America. And in order to be, to get this horse to qualify for the race, he has to do a, a time trial, like a run around a track. And Mickey Rooney take, finds all his old contacts from the... Are they in St. Louis? I don't remember. This movie uh, might take place in St. Louis. Good. Okay, so the they f- they find this track. For some reason, they decide to do the time trial at night, like in the middle of the night, <laughs> which they would never do. Which they would never do. And, and all- then it storms. And, yeah, and then it <laughs> and storms. Still do it. And it's raining. They still decide to do it. All right. The lap. So, so you got all these skeptical adults in the racing world who are like, oh, who's this wild horse and this kid who's going to ride him, <laughs> right? The lap that the boy does around the track is one of the most thrilling, beautiful, uplifting, amazing sequences I've ever seen in a movie. It's my favorite part of the movie. It is... I love to wax lyrical on this podcast, but it reminds me of the last 10 minutes of The Godfather 2, when things become a symphony in movies, when sound, image, story, music all come together to produce something 
that is in itself what I imagine hearing a great symphony is like live. I mean, that's the effect it had on me, where it is just an unbelievable sequence of movie of movie making. Everything is crystal clear. So that's my favorite part of the movie. Steve, what's your favorite part? My favorite part, I'm not going to describe because I want people to discover it themselves. Okay. And that is how the boy teaches the, uh, how, how the boy gets on the top of the horse. Okay, yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think that's, you know. That is the most jaw-dropping, most visually original thing that I, one of the most original things that I've, in this movie, and one of the things I've, I most original things I've I think it's seen. super clever. I think the, the but time. But it's beautiful and graceful. I and think just... the time trial is uh-huh. the most jaw-dropping sequence in the movie. Uh-huh. I mean, it's literally, it's... Any it, movie that has these two sequences yeah, in it, yeah. it's like the... Should go on the Mount, yeah, Hush, yeah. Mount Rushmore of, of, of beautiful movies. Yeah, I mean, this is just a beautiful work of art film. Yeah. The story is crystal clear. And it's funny because it comes down to fairly conventional movie making, which is a competition, right? Yes. And yet it never loses its luster. I yeah. never once think, ah, oh, here's this hack, and it's like the second half of MASH ends in a football game. And I'm like, well, that's <laughs> dumb. But I didn't feel that way about this because it's a fairy tale. It should end in a big, in a big climatic race sequence. I've got no problem with it. The whole movie's so unbelievable to begin with. Yes. You know, it's just, it's totally fine with me. Steve, do you have any questions for me on this movie? Well, I the, the one question we, yeah. we mentioned um, about, you know, can children appreciate? And I hope so. I, I will show so. my son this movie, but I will show it to... Now, my, I think they can enjoy it, yeah. but will... They don't need to appreciate it as long mm-hmm. as they enjoy it. Uh, but I think adults... Will appreciate it. Will, will appreciate it, and but, but can also be um, yeah. completely immersed. Children don't appreciate things. They enjoy things, and okay. there's nothing wrong with that. I will defer to your expertise on that. Yeah, there's nothing... There's I, nothing I don't have a kid. <laughs> my son isn't going to say to me when I showed this movie to him around seven years old... I love the cinematography. Like, like, boy, Dad, what a work of art. I really like that movie. Cool. Did you, did you see the part when the horse went around the track? I mean, but that's not to say he didn't... That, Everything that I'm um, verbalizing that mm-hmm. I like about these sequences has the same effect on the kids. They're just not going to verbalize it, but it has right. the effect. R- calling out the effects is not a virtue. Me being like, here's what's great about this is not mm-hmm. a virtue on my part. We just like talking movies, right? Yes. It's enjoyable for us. It doesn't make us better at watching movies. If a child is affected the exact same way you're affected, but he doesn't feel the need to say what exactly it was, that doesn't make him any less bad at watching movies no that, that's true and and as an example uh, uh, another uh uh the uh, great children's movie that hits everybody on a primal level is the wizard of oz sure that has a magic that's it's almost indescribable yeah um this movie it obviously it has a different uh feel to it but it, it has the same kind of it, it has a magic all of its own. This movie I I'll wouldn't say. show to my son until he was about seven years old because the father mm. dies. Yeah. I don't think my son could handle that right now. There is an astonishing sequence um, on board the ship. Uh, it's right before the crash. The uh, the kid is asleep, but well, he's, he's in his bed and he's looking at that little trinket yep. that his father gave him. Uh-huh. And it all of a sudden, for a moment, it starts to glow red. Yeah. And it looks so amazing, but it has a purpose because... That the light from that glow come, yep. came from a uh, from a window from the that's storm. showing the uh, the explosion yep. that's sinking the ship. Yep, that's how detailed and carefully worked out, and yet so astonishingly beautiful. It doesn't feel manipulative. It was just a perfect instance. It was amazing. This Here's movie's made by pure craftsmen. Yes. Yeah. 
Well, pure craftsmen and pure art- artists, because there is there is in- yeah. phenomenal artistry on, yeah. on a certain level. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a wet blanket on this and yeah. be the party pooper. Okay. And ask this question. The only derogatory thing I, I can say about this movie, there is no way... Do, oh, do you buy Terry Garr, who plays his mother, mm-hmm. letting him race? No, no way. There's no way she no, lets look, him race. First of all, any, any, <laughs> any mother whose son returns from the dead is going to lock her son in a bubble. Like yes. literally, like the Bubble Boy. Like, they, are you kidding me? <laughs> now they make they they make an effort to say, and she says, "I lost my husband. I'm not going to lose yeah. a son." And she puts up some resistance. And emotionally speaking, storytelling storytelling speaking, yeah. it's plausible because you know she learns. You know, this horse saved. His life. Short answer, absolutely not. I once lost my son in the woods for 10 minutes, and I've never <laughs> let him out of my sight since. I won't even let him near a, a tree. You know what I mean? If you, it didn't occur to me the first time I watched this, but this last time, I said, there is no way yeah. anyone is going to convince her to let her boy do that dangerous. But if you can get past that, yeah. and and they do the work, they do the work to, to give a plausible reason. Mm-hmm. You know, the kid makes his case, and she caves. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. Okay, let's get into bad pitches. Bad pitches, okay? Um Robinson Crusoe meets National Velvet. Now you have to go a little a little far away for National uh uh for National Velvet. National Velvet starred Mickey Rooney yeah. and Elizabeth Taylor, and Mickey Rooney rode National Velvet, I think mm-hmm. that's the name of the horse, yeah. at the end of the movie. It's it's it's, it's a perfect uh symmetry. Robinson Crusoe Obviously. By the way, um, the character that uh, Mickey Rooney plays was a once great, in his youth, a once great mm-hmm. uh, jockey. Yeah. And they actually took stills from the movie National Velvet. And, and gotcha. That's, that's actually pretty cool. All right. I have a good pitch and a bad pitch. Okay. My good pitch, and I'm surprised you didn't do this, and I'm happy you didn't. Um, I was positive one of these two movies was going to be in your pitch, uh-huh. is uh, Chariots of Fire meets um, Castaway. Oh, that's real. That's good. The reason I chose Chariots of Fire rather than Sea Biscuit, as I think this movie has more in common with Chariots of Fire than it does Sea Biscuit, regardless of the fact that Sea Biscuit's about a horse. Mm-hmm. I think that da 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 da. The basically Sea um, Chariots of Fire treats the running much the same way that uh, Black Stallion treats the horses galloping. Mm-hmm. It is a it's a magical almost visceral mythological experience right the music the sound when they're running on the beach in chariots of fire that is much more similar to the horse running on the sand than sea biscuit running around the track uh in that movie does that make sense yes it does i want to take i'm glad you mentioned sea biscuit i meant i meant to uh bring it up earlier sea biscuit is based on this terrifically witty not witty, yeah. witty uh book it's not a novel but a, a book that recounted very accurately yeah. and a, with a terrific charm yeah um, Seabiscuit's life. The movie tears the book down. I like turns the movie. it. I, I hated that movie. I liked it the turned movie. it into a dreary class warfare nonsense. <laughs> and I'll tell you this: the racing sequences. I noticed this: the racing sequences with the technology they had, with the steady cams yeah. and the lighter and, and the lighter cameras and the less light that you need, wasn't as good as the ra- racing sequences in the black stallion oh, there's and, no question. and that shocked me yeah because i should have been blown away with the advanced um you know what because the, the people aren't with, with the advanced technology they should have been able to do more they weren't as talented as the here's why i disagree if i give you a block of marble and a chisel yeah you can make a better sculpture than somebody with a chainsaw and like <laughs> fine precision tools you know what i mean yeah like 
the craft like sometimes you have enough the craftsmanship in black stallion they they had what they needed and like i don't think the technology leads to better so i'm not sure that they should have had better race sequences well put it, they should have at least been able to match all right so you gotta they let, didn't even do that yeah, you gotta let me do my bad season. pitch now i give okay. you a good pitch okay my bad pitch is gilligan Isle, gilligan's <laughs> island meets mr ed <laughs> that's pretty bad yeah pretty bad. <laughs> i like that yeah, because my, my other one, once again, is too good. You might be able to convince somebody. You know yes, what I mean? That would be a serious pitch. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. All right, Steve, so um, any last thoughts on this film? No, except uh, I thought it was kind of interesting. Oh, we were talking about the Oscars and, yeah. and them depriving yeah, we, I guess exactly. we should talk a little bit yeah. about that. Absolutely. Now, in 1979, uh, the five movies that were nominated were not a disgrace at all. Well, in fact, one of them was also made by Zoe Trope Studios, okay. um, and that was Apocalypse Now, oh, which okay. was Coppola's baby. And maybe that explains maybe um, there wasn't they did decided not to you know blast out the budget because they yeah. didn't want the competition because yeah. Apocalypse Now got a ton of Oscar nominations. Yeah. It only won two. Okay, uh, it didn't it didn't uh, so do what well. won that year? Kramer versus Kramer, Boo. which is a good domestic drama. But the Academy was in they were in the business of awarding. Domestic dramas like that, and the year after, Ordinary People, a couple of years after that, mm-hmm. Terms of Endearment, a yeah. drama comedy. Um, you can't justify Kramer versus Kramer over um, Black Stallion. Black Stallion. Boy, you just can't It's do funny, because it. I think most people who would have a problem with that uh, list of nominations, winners and losers, they would say Apocalypse Now. I, don't, I think you're the only person in America who would say, no, it's Black Stallion. And that's why I love you. I think that's well, great. Well, my, my main contention is that it wasn't nominated. It, it wasn't nominated? It wasn't nominated for Best oh, Picture. Black yeah. Stallion, Black Stallion. All right, so what, what goes out that year? What, what, what the are you five nominees, out? five yeah. nominees were Kramer versus Kramer, yeah. okay, uh, Apocalypse Now, mm-hmm. Breaking Away, wonderful yeah, movie. Yeah, that's amazing. Wonderful movie. Uh, uh, um, Norma Ray. Oh, there it is. And All That Jazz. All That Jazz is really good. No, you got to kick out Norma Ray. Norma Ray's gone. I, I agree. No, I, I agree. I love all that jazz. All that jazz is fantastic. By the way, you know what's funny? Norma Ray was almost my bad pitch for uh, for uh, Mad Max. Is my bad right? pitch was almost uh, <laughs> Norma Ray meets Rambo, and I decided to go Silkwood <laughs> instead because I thought she was a little bit closer to the Furiosa character. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I, was literally, I know, actually think she's closer to the Norma Ray. I think you were well, right. There you go. So, but the point is it was down between <laughs> Silkwood and Norma Ray. But I will say, I think... The Black Stallion is a better achievement than all five, including Apocalypse Now. I'm glad you think that. And you know what? Boy, the Apocalypse Now was tough for me. It's amazing technically. I think it's I think it's a I think the the debate has merit. With a hundred percent that debate has merit. I'm not sure I agree, but it has merit. And by the way, if you ask me which one I'd rather watch tomorrow, no question, Black Stallion. Excellent. Without a doubt. I don't want to watch it. It's Apocalypse. been a while since I saw Apocalypse Now, it's but wonderful. I I came away Apocalypse feeling that it was like a Mad magnificent Max. failure. No, it's like Mad Max, in my opinion. It's mm-hmm. unbridled creative genius. No rules, no restrictions, and in fact, ruined him in a weird way. Like, <laughs> you could never come It drained him out? It drained him out. He okay. never made another... Who well, I never made another great movie. Certainly I'm not, not sure he ever made another really good movie no, either. he didn't. <laughs> no. Unless you count Dracula. No. It's not there. Um, lines. Oh yeah. Now, you might you might say that you know let's not do lines because the first yeah after, when the shipwreck you go like a half an hour and yeah. there's virtually nothing, so it's kind of hard. I picked when when he comes home. Yeah. 
um, he, he's treated, you know, uh, I think it's the first image after yeah. he gets rescued. He's in a school auditorium, and yeah. it, which looks like a kind of a boring scene. It's, it's going to be a boring scene. And this little girl's giving a, a poem, reciting a poem in his honor. Yeah. And it ends with this, which I thought was, Now here he sits, a hero among boys with, a toy, with, a, with the love of a horse, much more than a toy. And I thought, I love that. You know, yeah, it's nice. You know, it, it's, it's not, it's not yeah. super poetic. It's not yeah. great poetic, but you're talking about a 10-year-old you know, girl. This movie's a lot like Mad Max. It ain't about the dialogue. No. no. I mean, it's funny that... But these, I thought it was touching. These movies are funny. actually good companion pieces in a weird way that I didn't realize. They, they're similar in the way that you enjoy them. There's just a visceral quality to it. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. These are not Kubrick films. You know what I mean? No, they're, these, they're not. Ta- they're not doing some overarching uh, commentary on the human condition. They're although not, they're they're addressing it, and they're not they're not cerebral. And they're not meant to be analyzed. They mm-hmm. are meant to be experienced in a visceral way. Yeah. Um, Steve, this was a good one, guys. For uh, guys and, and gals, whoever's listening to this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. It goes a long way towards getting more listeners. If you enjoy it, we enjoy doing it. Steve, always a pleasure. Love, love these two movies. And I hope it was not too political this time around. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Sorry for all those of you that who offend, who, whom we offended. Yeah. Get over it. Look, I, <laughs> yeah. Guys, really, they're just movies. They're not that important. You know, this is not the workplace. You know, the, 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 we're not talking about Congress here. We're talking about the movies. Yes. All right, take it easy. Uh,